0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to The Minefields, a show where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Um, I feel like I say this quite often, um, that those dilemmas don't seem to come much bigger than this. This week, look, whenever I say it, I mean it. I think this week is one of those... Let's just say it fits neatly into that category. This is one of those shows where what are we even trying to do really, shedding light on something so complex in the space of a 54-minute radio show that requires probably lifetimes uh, of knowledge and research to shed meaningful light upon. Nonetheless, we kind of feel obligated at least to try and to do our best with, well, I suppose as much humility as we think is appropriate in the circumstances while still being prepared to say something that might be useful. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host for this
0: daunting task. Hello, Scott. Hey, Waleed. <laughs> I'm glad you sounded the initial note of humility. Um, I thought you were going to tell me off for it. No, you... no, no, no. Far, far from. In fact, I, I really must say from the outset that one of the things that I found most distasteful about the coverage of the ongoing unfolding calamity in Afghanistan is the Uh, the series of people who are launching into public conversations about what's going on, what should have been done 20 years ago, what should have been done five years ago, what should have been done last year, uh, with a huge degree of moral, strategic, military, historical certitude and nothing like the kind of humility that I think had it been displayed very early on in the process of uh, military and strategic intervention in the Middle East, um, had it come to inform a degree of the United States posturing in the world, had it informed even something like the way in which nations like the United States comport themselves in relation to other cultures, other nations, it would have served us all much, much better. So neither of us, I mean, you're a terrorism expert. I'm not. Uh, Neither of us are Afghanistan experts. I suspect that there are very, very, very few people who in fact are. And one of the great pleasures for me over the last week has been to publish people who – on the Religion Ethics website, people who have in fact been there, who have in fact lived there, not just for years but in fact for decades. Um, And and there's nothing like the kind of chest-thumping certitude. Uh, or the self-congratulatory, see, this is why we never never should have gone in in the first place, that I think we're finding everywhere else. So if uh, if I can just ask our listeners to please uh, bear with us. We're going to try to do this well, but without any of, I think, the vices that uh, have unfortunately typified a lot of the other coverage we've been hearing.
1: May I begin by articulating a principle? I, I'm interested in whether or not you you agree with this, mm. that confronted with a situation like this Perhaps the best way to say something meaningful is to ask the biggest questions possible. Hmm. So in other words, I get there is a lot of granularity involved that must be discussed and is clearly relevant when you are talking about the very specific situation of, you know, the policies that Western nations have had in Afghanistan and decisions about should they have withdrawn and all that sort of stuff. But I actually wonder, especially for a show like ours, whether or not we're best advised zooming out as far as possible and asking much bigger questions mm. to do with the general way of thinking of Western foreign policy, and maybe even much bigger questions such as what, what is a nation state? Yeah. Um, that it might be that, that the broader our vision is, the, the larger the Zoom the more meaningful the commentary we can make. Now, I've only just thought of that, by the way, because I've just been thinking about my own thoughts and how I would frame them, and that's kind of how I would frame them. But I'm interested, as we set out on this, whether or not you think that sort of
0: approach is useful or actually the opposite of that. Hmm. Look, usually when you come up with a principle to guide discussion, I tend to like it a lot because I think, I mean, you you have the kind of mind that works well with big principles, Um, for the most part, I think I like that. The fact that so many of the expectations, even of people who know a great deal about and have been intimately involved, for instance, in the development of a, something like a peace process or something like a peace agreement that would facilitate, that would negotiate, that would mediate the withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan. The fact that even people who know so much about the situation have been confounded By the speed, the government of of Afghanistan has fallen. Urban centers have been taken over. Security forces have been entirely routed. The fact that even they have been surprised when even the most pessimistic estimates of how long this government might stand following the withdrawal of U.S. troops pegged it around about sort of 90 days worst case, 18 months, probably more reasonably. The fact that there's been that much surprise tells me that there's something very, very, very big going on there 's a kind of deep underlying contradiction there 's something that 's either unacknowledged or not sufficiently grappled with, and that I think is the thing that probably lends me tends me towards accepting yes, the bigger we throw this, the wider we throw this net, the bigger we ask the question, the closer we may well get to the truth can i Can I give one qualification, however, and you can tell me if you think sure. this fits within the principle. Mm-hmm. I think one of of the problems in making the principle too big or posing the question too broadly is that it could lend itself to the kind of solution or the kind of answer that also doesn't tell us a great deal. So, so for instance, if if we were to say that one of the underlying problems with U.S. and ally intervention in Afghanistan – is that they're trying to impose a cultural, a political system on political, civic, cultural soil where that system never really stood a a good chance of taking root, of coming to fruition. In other words, it's a Western imposition on on foreign soil – But foreign, not just in the geographical sense, but also in the sense of just, you know, lending itself. Paradigmatically foreign. Paradigmatically foreign. Thank you. Um, One of the tendencies we leave ourselves open to, and I've been hearing a lot about this over the last two weeks. One of the tendencies is uh, democracy can simply never work in a place like Afghanistan. Which then I think is one step away from something like a place like Afghanistan is simply ungovernable apart from displays of brute force, overt or soft corruption. Therefore, systems of transparency, accountability, consensus building, these are the kinds of things that simply can never work in a place like that, which then I think then goes one step further towards, well, if the United States pours $2.3 trillion worth of money, 20 years of nation-building uh, this much personnel development, this much military hardware, if Afghanistan can't then stand on its own two feet, then that's their problem. I guess my, my only concern with throwing the net too broadly is that it prevents us from seeing, I think, more meaningful things that are closer to the ground, more meaningful things that maybe do need to be discovered at a granular level and may well then inform. Uh, retrospectively, accordingly, some of the development of those broader principles. That's my only slight qualification, but you can tell me if I've got that completely wrong.
1: Well, no, I, I'm alive to that. I'm just, uh, I don't think the logical extensions that you fear necessarily have to happen. Okay. Except to the extent that I think some of the building blocks here might be so. F- fundamentally misconceived, that we might be talking about the wrong political frame. None of that means anything to anyone listening. So maybe, let me be concrete about this. Um, I think the overwhelming question that arises from this, and to be clear, this is not a new question, Mm -hmm. is whether or not, when we talk about building the nation state of Afghanistan, we are describing anything that makes any sense at all. That is... You can try to build a state in Afghanistan, but do you have a nation in the first place? So is the Westphalian political frame of nation states, which is effectively that for every people you have a state, that is, it presupposes a coherent people. Does that make sense when you're talking about a place like Afghanistan? And here I go back to, I think, an important element in the history of Afghanistan, which for me sums up the problem. I, suppose, I was going to say in miniature, but maybe it's too vast for that. And that is that Afghanistan is a, is a buffer state. Mm. Uh,
0: so th- this is a state that was- So sorry, by, by buffer state, what you mean is it's territory that's carved out or that's created by the imposition of borders all around it.
1: Yes, for reasons that have only to do with external political actors <laughs> okay. and nothing to do with the people in the region, yeah, right? Yeah. And when I say the region, I mean the region bordered by these these national borders now, right? So Afghanistan was a buffer state between the British Empire, and yes, so you have British India especially, and the Russian Empire, hmm. which moves up into Central Asia, right? And this is all, we're talking about the... Anglo-Russian conflicts uh, that are happening in Asia. We're talking about the 19th century. And so it seems to me, and here I defer to the expertise of our guests, who I'm I'm more than happy to come along and correct me, but it seems to me that what you're then talking about is a state that really exists only for the imperial imperatives of the Russians and the Brits. Mm. There needed to be a space between them somehow. And it is therefore completely unsurprising, A, that Afghanistan would be such a common theatre of conflict in the meeting of these two civilizations, and these two empires and the descendants of them, in this case, the Americans. But also, it doesn't surprise me that you're not talking about something coherent. Now, I, for you know, cultural reasons as much as anything else, spend quite a bit of time thinking about the Middle East. And this is a scenario that I think describes so many nation-states or purported nation-states, notional nation-states of the Middle East generally. And that is that the borders are designed for Western imperatives and leave those within them trying to deal with something that doesn't carry any kind of social meaning that's coherent enough to be the basis of a successful nation-state. mm mm-hmm. And I know that's not the sum total of all the problems that you see across the Middle East, but it is, I think, a very important part of it. And then, you you know, there are even moments where you see this played out quite specifically. We've seen it in Iraq. We've seen it in the short-lived union between Syria and Egypt in the 20th century. There's sort of an attempt to try to recalibrate. You're seeing it play out in Syria. You sort of recalibrate what the borders might be so that we can create something coherent, but I guess the point I would make or the observation I'm making is we're only talking about this place because of Western interests or at the very least foreign imperial interests. That was, and, and given that's the conception of it, it seems that that's the original sin that just keeps on invoicing us whenever something tries to happen. So it, I go back to, interesting. So, uh, uh, just on. to just to sure. show you how, the, how this finally expressed itself. You, I'm sure, would have seen the news reporting of the final Inspector General report in the United States. And this goes into all the ways that the US failed in Afghanistan. But there's so many quotes you could pull from it. But this quote, I think, is really interesting. The US government... Also, clumsily forced Western technocratic models onto Afghan economic institutions, trained security forces in advanced weapon systems they could not understand, much less maintain, imposed formal rule of law on a country that addressed 80 to 90% of its disputes through informal means, which is important, mm-hmm. and often struggled to understand or mitigate the cultural and social barriers to supporting women and girls. There are so many quotes I could go on with, but the basic idea here, similar to what we saw in Iraq, I think, is that the way Western foreign policy worked was simply to assume that if you bombed a place enough, you would discover America. Yeah. And that you you could force a template on it. This has never been true of this parcel of land that we call Afghanistan, and yet the constant attempt at state-building without nation-building being something that could either be rigorously attempted or may not even be possible. To me, you're looking for a fundamental contradiction? That seems the fundamental contradiction. To me. Now, as I say, I hold these views tentatively. I'm open Mm. to being persuaded by those who know better than me.
0: Look, uh, that's th- my uh, opinion this camp. is all. This is all really interesting. I think it's incredibly helpful. And if I can just supplement what you're saying with one further thing, because it's not just, I think, the formation of disparate parcels of land into something like a geographic whole, which is then meant to almost organically, you know, so the expectation goes, which is meant almost organically to produce something like an entire people, quote unquote, within that geographic confines. It's also the imposition of forms of recording technology and technocracy onto otherwise organic ways of life that actually create problems that weren't necessarily there in the first place. I don't know if you remember, Willie. I think it was in our, was it in the second year of our show, we had Charles Taylor, uh, the great Canadian philosopher. One of the things that I learned from him is that the tendency of the British Empire, for instance, to conduct censuses in the corners of its empire created enormous problems among populations that were themselves already quite pluralistic, that were themselves already rather multicultural, where there was a tendency in these earlier empires to simply live side by side with other ethnic groups because that person is simply my neighbor. But then as soon as you do a census, my neighbor, who is of a different ethnicity, suddenly is no longer my neighbor, but a member of, a harbinger of, a stand-in for, the signal of— uh, a much larger group of people that may well be putting the identity, the security of this bit of land in jeopardy. So, the very so it's act- kind of
1: like the creation of an identity politics. Exactly. Where a bit. Yeah.
0: So the very act of recording, the very act of imposing a degree of, say, political technology onto forms of relationship can in fact create problems where those problems weren't already there. So it's worth pointing out, I think, that right up until the early 1960s, Afghanistan was, I think it's probably best described as a constitutional monarchy. It had a constitution, it had a king or a royal family, and yet that royal family ruled at a distance and with a fair degree of benevolence. One of the great criticisms of the imposition of a form of elected government following 2001 in Afghanistan is that these foreign powers are creating a form of monarchy, a form of presidency that is far more powerful and in fact is far more open to corruption than that earlier 1960s monarchy ever was. The other thing that I think is so interesting about the experiment of the last 20 years in Afghanistan is that there are of course forms of local, of regional, of village-based and of clan-based forms of consensus building of consensus-seeking, forms of elder-based representation, uh, what we can only call the development of grassroots and civic society organizations for for education, for mutual assistance, what we might even describe as welfare. All of these things, in fact, exist. As soon as you try to plug these into forms of representative politics— And then you back those forms of representative politics with enormous injections of funds from the outside when there are no systems of accountability, transparency, moderation, education for the proper disbursement and use of those funds. That's the creation of a system that lends itself to corruption in an environment in which those forms of corruption need not have existed at that level, at that scale. So I think what what you're saying is is exactly right, and I think you can even pursue it to that lower level. I guess my, my final point, and I think we need to get into our guests nice and quickly here, but I guess the, the, the final issue, you know, there are a lot of people saying, and I, I for one find incredibly objectionable, both the fact that the attacks on New York City in the Pentagon on September 11th, 2001, not only were they used as a kind of blanket justification for a war in Afghanistan that perpetuated the Western history in Afghanistan, which was to treat that parcel of land as a means to someone else's end. In this case, the eradication of a system, uh, of a governing system that gave sanctuary to Um, Terrorist networks. And the fact now that 20 years later, the anniversary of that date is being used to create another inexorable, unavoidable logic namely, troops have to be out by the upcoming anniversary, the 20th anniversary. I find that kind of bookend logic really objectionable on all sorts of levels, not just because it violates, I think, a fundamental moral principle concerning the reduction of other people to means to someone else's ends. But I think even even beyond that, there is the imposition of a kind of logic, a kind of strategic logic onto Afghanistan that needn't have been there from the first place had we recognized that any form of, and I think we both take objection to the use of the term nation building. I'm not sure that's the right term here. But if we want to think of it in terms of The creation of forms of endogenous, grassroots, locally recognizable, organically accountable forms of culture, mutual governance, of representation, deliberation, consensus building. Those things take time. They take enormous amounts of time. And there's all this eye rolling and finger wagging about the fact the United States has been there for 20 years. When it comes to the development, of cultures, of endogenous cultures, of accountability, of transparency, of consensus building. 20 years is nothing. And I guess this
1: is... Well, and that that's if the, a foreign nation state and its army is even the right vehicle for it. Yeah, yeah. In the first place. Yeah, right? I think that's right. And to some extent I understand that that was inevitably the vehicle because this thing is precipitated by a military invasion. But I do wonder... Whether or not part of what we're witnessing here is we're trying to talk about a project of political development that is simply not something that a military can deliver and perhaps not even something that a foreign government can deliver. Maybe you're talking yeah. about it facilitating, but I, this is where I would be interested in knowing whether or not that's a possible thing to do in the environment that's created in the aftermath of an invasion.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and and look, if we're talking about the imposition of forms of political technology creating problems, I mean one of the other aspects of course here is that it may well be that the very presence of a military and the very fact of the foreign backing of a placeholder government, uh, I mean that creates problems of its own um, that can't be resolved until that backing is gone, until that military is gone, which then creates additional problems of its own making. I mean, the whole thing is just right. is so diabolically complex. And yet, and yet,
1: if we are to say there are lessons to be learned here, I suspect there is no prospect of them being learned in similar circumstances. So, for example, if September 11 happens tomorrow again, do you think the US doesn't do this all over again?
0: I don't. I don't.
1: You don't think they will? I,
0: I simply cannot believe it.
1: I cannot believe they would possibly restrain themselves from military engagement. And then the minute that happens, they're left with the same questions. What do we do now?
0: It took 25 years of anguishing, of hand-wringing over the unilateral withdrawal from Vietnam for the United States to dupe itself into the idea that it had to project force once again in order to impose its will upon a potentially disordered world.
1: But hang on, there's no, this is not that. This is a response to a, they always call it the worst terrorist attack on American soil, right? Yeah. it wasn't. This wasn't like Iraq, and it wasn't just a bunch of people who just dreamed up this idea of, hey, let's just go impose order. There was a stimulus response here. Yes, there was, was a security, a national security argument being made. Yes, there were other arguments alongside, you know, liberation of women and all that, but, but the genesis of it is a national security argument. That's right. Do you seriously mean to tell me? That if something similar to September 11 happened again tomorrow, the United States would
0: not respond militarily in the same way. Honestly, Waleed, the experience of Iraq, what's been going on for the last four years in Syria, and now the sheer messiness, the chaos of Afghanistan. I think that has been the clearest reminder, even more poignant in many respects than Vietnam, of the sheer complexity of the world and the relative isolation of the United States and some of its yeah, allies. People made those warnings at the time. People made those warnings, but again, it just seems to me that there is something slightly different. There's a degree of complexity that's going on now, and there's been a chastening, particularly of the ruling class in the United States, that I think simply cannot, and and and, and I should say there's been a scrambling up the, of the political divisions in the United States, uh, um, so that one party can no longer really be described as the party of hawks and the other party cannot really be described as the party of doves. I think there's been a kind of scrambling there uh, as well as a scrambling of other terms that I'm really keen to talk to our guest about, like Mm -hmm. isolationism versus internationalism. I just think there's been such a scrambling, there's been such a chastening that I simply don't think that the same kind of retaliatory response without the necessary Recognition of what must then come after for that response to be more than just a retaliatory response. Uh, wow. I think that's that's the lesson that's been learned.
1: But it wasn't a party of hawks; it was a nation of hawks. Of course, it in was. the aftermath, of and that's what would was. happen again. Yeah. Anyway. It's a counterfactual and I hope it doesn't arise, obviously. But I just, I, I'm astonished you think that's even possible. Yeah. I really am. I just, anyway. Um, you're listening to The Mindfields. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice.
0: It's a tremendous delight to have our guest on the show. And I've got to say, in terms of auspicious guests, uh, he really is auspicious indeed. Stephen Wertheim is Senior Fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also the author of really an astonishing book of 20th century history called Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy, which kind of makes Stephen you the perfect guest to have on the minefield. Thanks so much for joining us. Well,
2: I'll do my best to live up to that rather lofty expectation setting, (laughs) but it's very nice
0: to be with you. Just being here, just being here, considering the busyness of your last two weeks, being here is a very nice start. Look, Stephen, let's take, I mean, we, we really are eager to get, I think, to some of these macro questions. Let's just take a step back, however, to what I think is still the unanswered question of our moment. I have certain ideas about this. I think Walid has some. I suspect that you do as well. It seems to me that the sheer speed of the collapse of the government in Afghanistan. That's produced two incommensurable, but in many respects, equally plausible responses. The one is, you see, Afghanistan could never stand on their own two feet. So why has America prolonged its um, presence there? Why not withdraw a long time ago? The other response is, you see, they could never stand on their own two feet. Why not prolong their presence there just a little while longer and at least try to eke out some kind of peace agreement. They seem to me to be the two most plausible responses. Where do you stand on the choice between the two?
2: I think both of those responses are rather coherent, but I do side a bit more with the interpretation that would say that the United States was not achieving a constructive purpose uh, through its war in Afghanistan for quite some time, and the incredibly rapid collapse of the Afghan security forces demonstrates that, you know, not, not only was the nation-building so-called effort not successful, but it's not really clear that any building was actually happening for quite a period of time in this war. In fact, Progress was moving backwards slowly until it moved backwards uh, very rapidly over the past several years. And that's why I think that the interpretation that would say, uh, look, one should actually stay in perpetuity or as far as one can see uh, in order to prop up the government against the terrible forces of the Taliban that view doesn't have it quite right because the Taliban had been making significant gains since the Taliban insurgency began in 2004. Uh, And so there really wasn't a kind of sustainable equilibrium. The Afghan government and the U.S. and allied side of the war was losing slowly over the past decade plus uh, until it lost very quickly indeed.
0: Can I just ask you one quick question, though, just as a follow-up to that? I mean, one of the decisions that was made early on, and I do think it was a decision that made a lot of sense at the time. I can hardly imagine the decision being otherwise at the time, and yet now it seems maybe this is something that could have been done differently. The very fact that the Taliban was excluded altogether from any conversation about the ongoing political process, they were not partners in a political conversation. There was no way for them to find a place, for instance, within representative politics within Afghanistan. And I realized that the Taliban's own rhetoric Uh, that this itself is a foreign and an immoral form of government. I realize that makes it problematic as well. But now, so late in the process, when a withdrawal has already been announced, to try to bring in some kind of power sharing, some form of retrospective recognition of the Taliban within this new Afghan politics. I mean, that was never going to work. Does this make us rethink the ways in which the Taliban could have been included in something more like a productive political conversation earlier on?
2: I think we should go back and uh, look at this history and debate. It's not a straightforward history, of course, and people are already coming up with opposite conclusions uh, based on, in some cases, the same evidence. I think one of the problems that afflicted the U.S conflicts in both Afghanistan and Iraq after September 11th was a tendency by the United States to demonize its opponents. Uh, It certainly demonized opponents in domestic politics, and that was also reflected on the ground. So the notion of making some sort of power-sharing agreement with the Taliban once the Taliban government fell which others like Hamid Karzai uh, wanted to do in Afghanistan, uh, that was rejected uh, by Donald Rumsfeld. And likewise in Iraq, uh, the United States famously ordered the Iraqi army to be disbanded. Uh, After all, the goal was to to liquidate the Ba'athist regime of Saddam Hussein. So there's a certain um, hubris and a failure to recognize a certain amount of difference and respect for existing forces in these countries, even though those forces were brutal, repressive. I have nothing nice to say about the Taliban or Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Uh, I think we have to grapple with that.
1: Yeah, it's. I suppose the theme that's emerging from our discussion so far, Stephen, uh, by which I mean Scott and my discussion before you arrived, and then this is everything we do and say about it as polities in the West has an overarching or overweening mythology attached to it. And it seems that what we're in the business of doing is trying to manifest the mythology rather than deal with reality. So the point you make, I think the parallel with the Ba'athists in Iraq is a really interesting one. And where do the Ba'athists end up going? Well, they end up joining forces with Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and establishing ISIS, right? So if they're not brought into the tent, they find other ways of expressing themselves and they might be ways that we're not very comfortable with. But what's interesting there is it seems to me that the thing that was most important to Western governments was the message that they were sending back home. That, like that mattered more. Weirdly, given the sort of real politic sort of let's face up to reality overtones of the invasions of both these countries. Weirdly, they collapse because there's a refusal to face up to the reality of the politics because reality has to be subordinated to a a, a prefabricated and approved vision of the world that is being sold to domestic audiences.
2: I think that's right. And I think so much of the response to 9-11 in the United States was not actually centered on solving a security problem. Now, I still believe that the United States needed to take military action in Afghanistan in response to the 9-11 attack. I think that was correct and legitimate to do. But very quickly, including on the night of September 11th, if you look at the speech that George W. Bush gave at the time, saying that the United States was A beacon of freedom to the world and that's why it was attacked Mm. there was nothing that the united states had ever done or could have done that perhaps might have featured in an explanation of why these men would go around the world and give up their lives to attack the united states just unimaginable and so so much of the u.s response was defined in terms of proving that the united states was indispensable to the world that it wasn't just gonna address a security threat, which might have happened in a very mundane way, choking off financial networks of Al Qaeda, engaging in limited raids and so forth. No, it was gonna demonstrate its awesome power and its ability to remake others and indeed an entire region of the world. That was an instant reaction and pretty much uncontested, I would say, at the upper reaches of uh, the U.S. government and uh, the U.S. commentary uh, class after September
1: 11th. So where do, where do you stand on the debate Scott and I were having about whether the U.S. response would be more or less the same if September 11 happened again tomorrow?
2: I think in some way the U.S. reaction to another large-scale terrorist attack would be different, but in what way is harder to say. I think you know, there would be a desire to repeat the so-called forever war pattern in which the United States undertook large, intensive state-building or nation-building wars. But there could be a response, which um, is one of the responses that exists on the political right of the country, which would be, we were insufficiently brutal last time. We didn't really get the job done. We didn't take the fight to the enemy. And so even a, a wider display of overwhelming force would have to be used. Um, that's a possibility. We shouldn't discount that possibility. I, I think what we you wouldn't see this time would be the effusive rhetoric about creating a world of liberal democracies that uh, came out of the George W. Bush administration. I think that's been pretty well repudiated on all sides of the political spectrum. I hope that we would see a better reaction, a more intelligent reaction that attempted to focus on the security problem and the best way to address that problem without creating more problems and inflaming the very threat that we would try to combat. I do think there are a lot of people in policymaking circles and in the wider country who have been chastened by the US experience of the post 9-11 wars. Um, but a lot would depend on the political forces ascended in that particular moment who would then define the policy response and the
0: broader narrative. Mm-hmm. Can I can I pick us up on this? Because I guess one of the big questions that I have, and I, I really am interested in maybe what has been learned over the last 20 years. Um, I mean, this isn't a show about 9-11, but it's also kind of a show about, <laughs> about, about 9-11. There are three lessons or three conceits, let me put them that way, that I really hope maybe we've begun to disabuse ourselves of. One is the one that Walid mentioned before, which is in certain places of the world, if we just bomb them hard enough, we'll discover the liberal Democrat underneath. I mean, it's still, it's still so shocking to me that that was so much part of the rhetoric and seemingly part of the strategic design surrounding the interventions in both Afghanistan and Iraq, which is just so completely non-historical, uh, nonsensical and unimaginative. I hardly know where to begin. So you have that kind of innocence on the one hand, there's a liberal democrat beneath uh, the skin of of every good person. All we need to do is to topple the tyrant, uh, and that will shine through. But then that innocence—it seems to me—and we've this is what we've dis- been discovering progressively in Afghanistan in particular—that innocence gives way so quickly to a kind of overweening cynicism, which is. Corruption is everywhere. Bad actors are everywhere. So we just need to make sure that we cooperate with our kind of bad actors. So you're right, Stephen. There's the demonization of our overt enemies, the demonization of those enemies that will be accepted as enemies on on home soil. But then there's the willful cooperation with really, really bad actors. There's the willful turning of a blind eye to forms of rampant corruption, which we've been seeing everywhere in Afghanistan, which then seems to cut violently across this form of innocence that I was talking about before. Um, but then the other is this conceit that unless America projects force and projects force at a massive scale, malevolent actors are going to rush in to fill the void. Now, are, are any of us sure? Am I just being naive here? Can any of those three things still be insisted upon or believed or asserted with any credibility after the experience of the last 20 years? I do
2: think that not many Americans would now have confidence that, as you put it rather well, uh, if you bomb people long and hard enough, you'll find the liberal Democrats below. So I think there's been some learning in that regard, although one interpretation would say other people are just backward and so yeah. perhaps one just needs to hurt them badly forever. That that is actually
1: the alternative. Yeah, its is. It it is. And, and I don't know that we can And that's also that, though that,
0: that's you know, also though the alternative that I think needs to be resolutely resisted in the way that we talk about Afghanistan from
1: here. Yeah, but we but we don't actually have a way of doing it. So the media coverage I think is interesting. And sorry to disturb your flow here, I'll disrupt your flow here, Stephen, but you know, one thing I've not heard anyone talk about in Western media, certainly not popular media, is anything that would explain why it is there were people taking selfies with the Taliban when they rolled into Kabul. So. That's right. Um, why does no one know that? Or why does no one even want to acknowledge that? It seems to me it can't just be that no one knows the explanation. It has to be that it it's unsayable within the confines of our cultural discourse, right? We've got no way of being able to highlight or, or account for that fact that fits within the two, the, the binary choices you have, those binary choices being everyone's a little Democrat if we bomb them enough and the other choice being everyone's just backward.
2: Yeah, the, the political narrative in the United States about Afghanistan is so utterly simplistic and founded on ignorance. And I don't say ignorance to demean people. I mean the war in Afghanistan was barely covered by the most prominent U.S. media outlets for the last several years. So it's no wonder why suddenly there's a the fall of Kabul and there's an outcry. And it seems plausible that Things were going along fine. After all, if you were an ordinary American, you never heard about what was happening in Afghanistan. And now look at this Mm -hmm. crisis. Well, why is it happening now? Well, something like 10,000 Afghans were dying every year. Mm The number was not decreasing over time. And for many Afghans, including women and girls in the countryside, um, it's not that they necessarily wanted to live under Taliban rule, But they also didn't want to uh, live under a brutal rule, sometimes promoted by the United States and its allies and the Afghan government, uh, or to simply live with constant warfare and the threat of being killed and having your family be killed all the time. So the narrative that penetrates in American politics is just dominated by a set of tropes that are quite recurrent through American history and are allowed to exist because of the almost necessarily short attention spans of the country itself, given the outsized role of American power in the world.
1: If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Mindfield, Walid well, Ali's my name. Scott Stevens is my co host. We're joined by Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
0: So let's just pick up on exactly this point, Stephen, because I think one of the, and sorry, by this point, I mean, Uh, the short attention span, and almost the lack of historical memory. One of the things that I found really, really disturbing, uh, especially among those who are beginning to weigh in, having not paid much attention to the circumstances, especially over the last six years. I mean, there are events in electoral politics in Afghanistan that have been profoundly concerning. Uh, The Taliban has simply not momentarily or overnight become amazingly strong. I mean, there has been a growing encroachment. Uh, I mean, the best possible scenarios, uh the existing or the former Afghan government and their backers only ever controlled um 30% of Afghanistan and the rest of the 50%, uh, sorry, 20% then of the Taliban, and then the rest of the 50% was only ever contested. So I mean these things did not just happen overnight. One of the things that I guess I found really disturbing, dispiriting, morally quite concerning is the incapacity in many circles to describe what is now going on as something like an American defeat. Uh, There is instead, well, basically the Afghans had it coming if they weren't willing to fight for their country, if they were too prepared to turn tail and run without a recognition of rampant corruption of the existing realities on the ground. I mean, that just seems to me morally objectionable on every level. Here's my question, though. If we could get to the point where we said that this was a defeat, and not just a defeat, but a resounding one. This revealed something about either the lack of imagination, the lack of internal national self-criticism, or even the lack of strategic willpower on the part of the United States. Could the acknowledgement of defeat give rise to something like a reconsideration of America's military involvement in the rest of the world?
2: I think it could, though I, of course, I appreciate the supposition of imagine a world where most Americans accept defeat and try to learn from it. I do worry that we might not get to that point. But I do think that the war in Afghanistan exposed problems in America's foreign policymaking that are more widely applicable One thing is the knowledge problem, the fact that a very small number of people in Washington, D.C., who have particular incentives wield enormous power over the fates of other societies and also tend to believe that they can shape outcomes profoundly around the world. Um, So the kind of confidence that you've been talking about, about all these pronouncements about Afghanistan, the United States, you know, headlines about, is this the end of American global hegemony? That just, these uh, reactions just reinforce, I think, a conceit that really the world is there to follow America's script and everyone else uh, essentially lives in some kind of relation to how the United States thinks about itself.
1: Yeah, it's not just the United States that seems to think that way. I mean, Scott, I don't know, maybe this is in part just a human tendency. We map our vision of the world onto everybody else Mm -hmm. um, and understand it in those ways. But in some ways, what Stevens described there is a problem um, or, or a difficulty, shall we say, for the whole regime of human rights, right? <laughs> and we've spoken about this on the show before. <laughs> yeah. so, so we will look at whatever is unfolding in Afghanistan very much through the prism of human rights and we will tally up the number of human rights that have been violated. We seem less interested in doing that when it wasn't the Taliban in charge, but we are very interested in doing that now. But, and while I think there is a great deal to be said for human rights, by the way, <laughs> we don't acknowledge that... There are elements of this like, you know the whole human rights worldview does spring forth from a particular worldview. that is a very liberal Western one. There is overlap, in some cases, considerable overlap with other worldviews, such that the human rights project, I think, has something to be said for it, if you can sort of broaden the epistemologies behind it. But what's interesting about the way Stevens described it is I feel like that is still happening even in the way we try to engage with the news that comes out of Afghanistan now. We're very selective about the bits that we're interested in, and they are usually the bits that have more to say to us about ourselves, I think. And, and I think this sort of shows up in some of the brutal calculations that you know, I hear analysts make when they're sort of talking more the hard end of these things. So, for example, how would a state that is to replace the Taliban, how would that state match the Taliban for um, imposing law and order? So this sounds like a crazy question to the Western ear, I think, because we don't think of the Taliban as bringing law and order. But the fact that that is a question that analysts will have to grapple with and that even locals, when you, you know, it squeaks out in interviews in Western press, for mm, example, where locals will talk about that. We'll okay, well, this is what happened when the Taliban came and there was, there was order. Now, we don't have a way of engaging with that. Um, or even the other question of what, what it, the economic opportunities that the opium trade provided. And by the way, I'm constantly bewildered at this, this group, <laughs> the Taliban, who are espousing the primacy of God's law but are prepared to fund themselves with a drug trade. I've never understood. But anyway, um, I, the, the economic opportunity that, that provides, what exactly is, is that being replaced with? in a new political order? Like these, I think, are the kinds of questions because they sit outside the paradigm of liberal democratic human rights. They're the kinds of questions, I think, that we find just as populations, leave aside governments, almost impossible to discuss because like we don't have a frame of reference for them.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think one of the really important things here, and Stephen, I'm really keen to hear what you have to say, uh, say about the point that Willie has made, but I mean, it is important, for instance, That there are forms of democratization, I think what can only be called democratization, in other words, forms of meaningful consensus building, forms of genuine transparency, forms of elder-based representation uh, that are taking place, that have been taking place, that have long been taking place in places like Afghanistan that don't map well against the Western conception of representative elections or the presence of a central parliament – uh, or a centralized parliament. So I, I think the idea that things of meaning, things of genuine value, things that could be recognizable across cultural barriers uh, but are nonetheless being described in a different vernacular or things that that can map only if we had the imagination to be able to see it that way. I mean that for me is a very, very, very important Insight. The other thing that I, I would just say briefly, it does seem to me that a good part of the way in which we are understanding this horrible human rights violating group called the Taliban, who are who have no way of, of dealing with Afghanis apart from terrorizing them. There's a good deal of that which I think is spoken in bad faith, because there is a good deal about precisely that, this human rights violating group which gives us the opportunity, those of us in the West and those of us who have been active participants in the uh, U.S.-led engagement in Afghanistan not to discuss things like, for instance, what we discovered last year through the Bretherton inquiry. It may very well be that there are a great many Afghans that are not sad at all in seeing the back of Westerners because they hardly their experience was hardly one of uh, uh, life with great human rights defenders.
1: Last word to you, Stephen, before we wrap up.
2: I hope that when we reckon with human rights and how to, in some way, promote human rights in the world that we have, we will try to distinguish between the impulse to stop evil and the impulse to help others. A lot of human rights politics, very much applicable to Afghanistan, has, I'm afraid, mostly been channeled into the cause of slaying the monster, standing up to the abuser, you know, speaking out as a doing something as opposed to doing nothing. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily actually help people, as difficult as it may seem to imagine, even when we're talking about a force as terrible as the Taliban. Or even in situations of mass atrocity, when a third party comes in and uh, tries to counteract by force the, uh, the offender, that introduces a whole set of problems and immediately takes us into the realm of the dilemma where we are killing people, committing a sin in order to try to save people. So I think Afghanistan, you know, offers at least a, a chance to, to do something at this point that will help people, and that is to accept refugees coming from the country uh, who want to leave and who are able to leave. Of course, uh, we don't know how much, uh, how, for how much longer people will be able to uh, evacuate the country, but doing something like welcoming Refugees from a conflict-torn place, that is something that will directly help without entering into the dilemma that the use of force opens up.
1: Stephen, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been um, a tricky one to navigate. We've done our very best. We hope you at least understand that. No doubt we'll have cause to revisit um, at least the themes that have been raised today, if not the specific factual matrix that has generated this show but we are at an end uh, Stephen Wertheim is Senior Fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield which is now at an end and we'll see you next week